Hey, it's Arlene Bynan filling in for Alex Pearson on On Point. Today on the podcast, the president of the OSSTF, Harvey Bischoff, joins us to talk about the complaint from the teachers union to the labor board about unsafe work conditions as the school year starts back up. Then we'll speak to an expert about basic income. Can you believe it? Also, has COVID created a platform to test out a new big economic liberal plan. And then we're going to talk to a renowned Toronto plastic surgeon about why certain procedures are seeing soaring popularity during the pandemic. Here we go. Good evening for Alex Pearson. Happy Monday, I'm Marlene Bynan. Wow, you know, I have to be very, very honest with you. I hate this week. This is one of my least favorite weeks because I you try so hard to kind of suck up the last days of summer and the whole feeling and the officialness of it and you know Labor Day's coming and I can't get it out of my head that when Labor Day happens you gotta you gotta head back to business you gotta wear new shoes or whatever you have to do and you have to make sure you got all your pencils and things because it is psychological so it's a tough time Anyway, this week, plus you're cramming it all in. And then we add, you know what, we add the pandemic. And it just throws all the things that I kind of hate about this week into another perspective. And I'm, I'm trying to think very positively. I'm going, okay, switch it around this week and be grateful and say, okay, you know, we had a break this summer. And we got to see people, (laughs) we got to go to a few places, but it has added another dimension. And and you can just see it by what we're going to talk about tonight. We know that there's been a survey that says people in Ontario are fearful that a second wave is coming. It's absolutely true. I don't even have to pay anybody probably for that. But it is... A time where we say to ourselves, look, how much do we have left? And then we see the school year. It isn't going to be a normal school year. And and today, we're of course, we're going to talk about how the Ontario teachers unions are filing labor board challenges over the reopening plans. And it's one of these examples that we can see all across the country here. We've got, we've opened our mind, haven't we, to a new, a new reality because of COVID. And then now we're starting to ask ourselves, are they trying it on? I mean, where do we revert back and say, hey, wait a minute. This is not the way we want it to turn out. This is, you know, are the, are the, let's face it, we were used to strife between the teachers union. And all of us can understand. I don't know if I would want to stand. I'm just being very, very honest. No politics. I do not know if I would want to stand every day in a school in an isolated area. Nobody would feel great about having to go into a closed room where you don't have, you know, you don't have all the things that everybody's been telling us we need, like ventilation, and you have to stand there all day. And this goes for workplaces, and all workplaces are dealing with it. So we do get it. But hey, we know politics doesn't stop during the coronavirus. And so we examine and we wonder, and tonight we're going to do it. You know, what have the unions got here? We've seen a, 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 an adjustment, an agility in the plans to go back to school. But 
what is real? What is politics and what is real? And I, I don't know about you. I, I have a completely open mind on these things as I look at them now because I think that that's what has made things differently. We don't just say, okay, my politics dictates that. And then let's add it, and we're also going to discuss this tonight. We know the liberals proroguing, and what do we have ahead? We can, we can read the tea leaves. And they're talking about thinking big. Are the liberals offering a big economic plan that could involve things like basic income already? A lot of analysis of the changes to serve, the changes to employment insurance, that they're already getting there. And is it correct, or did they use an open door of vulnerability to change things in a way that they don't have a mandate. We're going to have a great, big, rollicking discussion about that today. But, you know, there's also other things. Are we behaving differently? I mean, I was shocked to read a story today that apparently people are becoming more interested in things that I didn't know if, if they would be. Uh, nose jobs are are becoming very popular, eye procedures, and I often wondered what the future of cosmetic surgeons were going to be in after this pandemic. We hear they are alive and well, and they're getting a different kind of request. Is it because people want to look good in a mask? Somebody said that. Do they want? I mean, we know... You know, Lady Gaga was, of course, rocking the mask. We know it's going to be a huge fashion item here. But are people really adapting how they look or how they look in a Zoom call? We're going to talk to a a renowned plastic cosmetic surgeon uh, from Toronto who is going to help us out with all those trends. But there is, it really is, there's a feeling that things during the week where we all feel antsy that things are not the same because they are not the same. And then in coronavirus news, we hear that, you know, Ontario uh, having more cases, reporting more cases, a little bit of a surge. In Quebec, there are, the kids have already gone back to school in the province of Quebec, and they're reporting no more cases. 81 Quebec City students are now in isolation And that's after just three cases confirmed at two schools. So if we're feeling, if teachers' feelings, if if, if parents are feeling, we have to give validity to feelings. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I'm going to do that. We have to give validity, in my opinion, to feelings and not just interpret it in a political way. Still, you know, what responsibility do the political factions happen and have here you know, are governments saying, okay, people are in a certain kind of a mood? Are they going to move forward in ways that maybe is political? So today we're going to take a deep dive and a, and a look at how we begin our week on a weird, weird week. Like usually this week, everybody is in a mindset. They know Labor Day's coming and you're going to soak it up and you know you can go somewhere. But you can't really. So you also are not really going back. Like, what are we going back to? 
Are we going back to the same? Are we going back to something different? How do we remain positive? I'm getting like bombarded in my emails of here's your new fall look and literally they're showing mass you know I got a an email from a big American fashion company and online shopping they are showing people I kid you not in a mask in the outfit and then we have the whole mass thing is is it being accepted is it going to be political and then just to top it all off with a cherry on top of whipped cream we're watching what's happening in the United States of America, and we're seeing protests, and then we're saying, okay, we've had a toppling of a statue here, John A. MacDonald, and what is right is what is wrong. And today we saw politicians from all different perspectives come out and say, you know, protest is one thing violence and toppling things is something else. And I do command Justin Trudeau coming out very, very clearly on that today. Then we create the safest environment we possibly can for everyone. And the teachers unions just want to fight. They want to fight with everyone. I don't want to fight with you. For Alex Pearson, I'm Arlene Bynan, and this is On Point. And as we watch the plans and we're all wondering how the heck everything is going to work out as the kids get back to school, we have this. We have the Ontario Teachers Unions announcing today that they're going to fight it and they do not feel comfortable with this plan. And there we have the premier of this province, Doug Ford, putting it into kind of a pugilist situation that they just want to pick a fight and tonight we're going to go behind the story we are joined by harvey biscoff president of the ossstf harvey thank you for being here My pleasure thanks for having me all right what what precipitated this move was there a, was there a point in a moment where the unions came together and said we just don't feel comfortable in fact we feel so strongly about it we're throwing down the gauntlet here yeah, I mean, what specifically precipitated it was that the Ministry of Labor, um, after a meeting we held with them last week and a request that we made to issue orders um, to to uh, uh, impose certain standards of safety on the school reopening, um, flatly refused to do so. After trying since uh, March to persuade the Ministry of Education to work with us and, and running into brick walls at every turn, we turned to the Ministry of Labour, who has an, uh, an obligation to keep Ontario's workers safe. They turned us down, too. So now we are going to, um, you know, an, uh, a third-party kind of tribunal, the Labour Board, um, to try to get them to exercise the authority they have to impose orders to keep workers and, you know, educators and therefore their students safe. You know, the province is laying it out saying, look, they've been um, relying on the advice of the medical authorities and the medical advisors. What about this plan do you think does not fall within what medical authorities are saying is safe? Yeah, so there's a half different, a half dozen different areas. They've refused to follow the advice of their their own sick kids report, the one that they commissioned that said that smaller class sizes should be the uh, priority strategy, in their words, for keeping the return to face-to-face learning safe. Um, this cohorting of 100 students is, is utterly meaningless, especially when it doesn't include the educators who might be itinerants, might move from school to school and pierce multiple hundred student uh, cohorts. They've 
they have absolutely no standards in place when it comes to the quality of, of uh, ventilation in schools, uh, none whatsoever. Uh, they're not requiring mask wearing for younger students, and they're refusing to follow the Public Service Health and Safety Association's own guidelines around transportation. So you will have buses that are um, as full of kids as they were prior to the pandemic, three kids to a seat in some cases, um, no distancing to the driver, uh, and and you know their own their own agency says this is inappropriate, and yet this is the the path they're going down. You know, um, tension between the unions and an Ontario government is not new, and class size has been part of it, Harvey. You know, um, some people, when they hear this, might be saying, are the unions trying to get those class size reduced on the back of the pandemic? We're looking for temporary safety measures uh, in order to ensure the safety of, of educators and students. You know, there are many things that we're looking for right now, standards around busing, ventilation, and masking that, of course, had nothing to do with negotiations. And so the notion that class size is uh, some holdover for bargaining is is absurd. We we signed a collective agreement. It unfortunately included an increase in class size because of the government's in, as insistence. Um, you know, the system would actually be a lot more resilient and have a lot more flexibility right now had they not pursued a, pursued that erosion. Um, nevertheless, there it is. But right now, we're in the midst of a pandemic. The sick kids report that the government commissioned said class sizes should be smaller. Today, uh, I saw on social media, Dr. David Fisman, a University of Toronto uh, epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist, plead with the government for smaller class sizes. Um, so to, to claim that this is some sort of holdover from bargaining is just, um, you know, it, it, it just doesn't align with the facts. You know, this has been an emerging set of knowledge for this virus. And part of it has been ventilation, where the virus goes, small droplets and then bigger droplets. You know, is that a new concern for teachers now, the air that you're breathing? It's a newer concern. I wouldn't say it's new. I mean, we started to see this science develop mm -hmm. at least a couple of months ago, but you raise mm -hmm. a very good point, and that is the fact that the science is developing right now. It's not settled. And when the science isn't settled, the Occupational Health and Safety Act says that you, um, that you pursue the precautionary principle. You put every measure reasonable in place under the circumstances to ensure uh, the health and safety of workers, and that's exactly what they've they've failed to do. So, you know, I mean, I'm I'm there. There's so much uncertainty. When that happens, that's the time that you that nobody can say for sure what the outcome is going to be. But you don't take unnecessary risks. All right, let me ask you, you know, again, the Premier brought up that the unions are always pushing for a fight. It is an antagonistic relationship. That's what unions are with the governments that they have to bargain with. How do you feel? I mean, this, this is a new kind of a situation before. You know, class size has been up there, so has been remuneration and various other things. This is something totally different. This is a virus, and this yeah. is health. Yeah, no, it's, again, uh, you know, I, I sent a letter to the minister on March the 12th, the day the school closures mm -hmm. were announced, saying that we are, we stand prepared to be fully cooperative with this government to assure uh, a safe and effective system under these difficult circumstances. Um, they have shut us out at every turn. They even excluded us from technical briefings uh, when they were making announcements about funding, something that no other government uh, in my 
pretty extensive history doing this work uh, has done. I appreciate that what the Premier would like to do is distract from his government's incompetence by claiming that the problem is unions. And if we were alone in opposing this return to school plan, maybe he had he would have a point. But the fact is, well over 200,000 Ontarians signed a petition asking for smaller classes. Many parents groups have been opposing this return to school plan. Um, medical experts like the one I just mentioned have been opposing this back to school plan. Um, we've seen the Ontario Principals Council highly critical and, and like you know the OPC are not exactly wild-eyed radicals they are opposing this back to school plan so this is a distraction that the premier is pursuing uh, trying to trying to draw attention away from the fact that parents simply have no confidence in his and, and Lecce's plan um, and that's the only purpose for him going down that road. Let me ask you, you know, there are those who listen and, and they may say, OK, you know, you can give uh, the unions anything they want. I mean, you could lay it all out on a big platter as they say, and they may not be satisfied. How do you convince people that this is different? This is a, for heaven's sake, this is about health and safety. This isn't a bargaining matter. This is our appeal to, um, you know, Section 25 of the Occupational Health and Safety Act, existing legislation in the province of Ontario that says this is how you keep workers safe, and that's part and parcel of keeping students safe. And if you can keep students and education workers safe, then you keep the people they go home to safe as well. You keep their communities safe. Um, so, you know, I mean, this is so far removed from from the back and forth during bargaining. It, it just bears no relationship to it. Everything we're pointing to um, is is a matter of safety uh, as as advised by medical experts. Um, and, it, and frankly, these are the measures that are taken in every other public space in the province. Um, you know, two-meter distancing is required in every other public space, and yet by some magical thinking, this government thinks that it's not necessary in schools, and I just don't understand the, the thought mm-hmm. process. We just saw that happen in Alberta. It has just uh, disappeared, the regulation for that distancing in schools. Final question. We are watching. We are all looking. It is a Petri dish all around the world. We're, we're noticing how kids got back to school, how universities opened, how high schools opened. It seems every day... We're we're getting evidence of some that didn't work out so great. In Quebec, we've got 81 people in isolation, 81 students in isolation after just a, a, a few outbreaks. Is is it impossible to make it a certain way? We know that's part of the argument. Is it about the plan as well when things go wrong? How are you feeling as you watch all these outbreaks and the results? Yeah, no, I think it's not impossible. I think it, it, it's that much more difficult when you establish the fiscal parameters first rather than the health and safety parameters, and that's what this government has done. Um, there would be ways to you know, massively in, improve the, the level of risk, bearing in mind there's risk in the world, including the risk of leaving kids at home, because that's not a great solution either. Mm-hmm. But the risk could be reduced, and they chose, uh, because they, they pursued artificial fiscal parameters, um, to to you know go down this road, which could potentially mean outbreaks in the future, future shutdowns of business, massive increase of cost to healthcare. In which case, this will be demonstrated to be a pennywise pound foolish approach. Harvey Bischoff, President OSSTF. Thank you for joining us. Not an easy a dilemma here. Thanks kindly for being Thanks with so us tonight. Basic income.
A lot of analysts are saying they're already showing the signs that the liberals are dangling it out there. They said they're going to do something big. Are they riding on the back of this pandemic where we all feel vulnerable, where there was a point gain in popularity, several point gains, certainly for the prime ministry as a minority government? Does he want a new one? And does he think the moment has arrived where these big things mean that basic income is something that Canadians, as I said earlier, is it just for lefties? Are people rethinking this? There have even been conservatives in the last little while, as the conversation goes, that are saying, no, this isn't just a left-wing thing. Others are wondering, again, if, if this prime minister is taking advantage of the pandemic and wanting to move in areas that maybe he doesn't have a mandate for. But get ready for it, because we're going to be hearing a lot more about it. Joining us is the chair of Basic Income Canada Network, Sheila Regeer. Sheila, thank you for being here. Good evening. Good evening, Arlene. All right, what do you know about basic income that maybe other Canadians don't? I mean, when we used to hear it, it had one kind of a perception. And then after the pandemic, people are, after they perhaps have filed for CERB, are saying, maybe I didn't know enough about it. I think you're quite right. I think a lot of people either had a very general idea or they had an idea with a bunch of reservations or they got confused by a lot of the terminology that's out there because, you know, there are a lot of different names, there are a lot of different proposals for things. But I think what COVID has done is really magnified the reasons why we need a basic income. I mean, we see very clearly the inadequacies of income security, the vulnerability of many people, um, and, you know, all of these issues we knew before And now we have this deadly virus that we have to accommodate in our daily lives, and we need the means to be able to do it. Do you think Canadians are at the point where they're going to think about this differently? And what about the name? Because, you know, does it deserve a new name? Would that be part of the cell, do you think, from the Liberals? I think, I mean, we in the basic income movement generally use basic income as just plain lowercase letters. Um, Mm -hmm. Some people use initials for things. The program doesn't actually exist. I mean, we we look at initials as something that is actually embodied in a program, like GIS stands for the Guaranteed Income Supplement. So whatever a program's actually called, you know, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, it will be named by the government. The most important part is what it does. And what we need it to do is build on some of the really important things that we have learned from CERB and build it into a more permanent basic income that makes sure that everybody is part of it and people aren't excluded because they don't meet EI qualifications and similar types of things. You know, one of the big fears and the criticisms of years ago when people talked about this concept is, will people even want to work? What will it do to the workforce? Will we create um, kind of a laggardness? Have we learned something about CERB that dispels those myths? I think one of the things we learned from CERB is that there was rather a design flaw in there initially. 
um, that that showed that it was it was discouraging people. I mean, you were actually cut off too early. What they've done in the redesign of some of the EI programs and the the CRB is design it so that actually does reward work, so that you get the security of having a minimum guarantee. But then as you are employed and as you earn more income, you benefit more. And that's the way our organization, you know, looks at structuring a basic income, too. Okay, how would that work then? Because we all we all know that, you know, people who get these kind of subsidies often say they had to go underground if they were going to work for a while, and there was a disincentive to work. How would this increase the incentive for people to do both? So the way this works is exactly the way that child benefits work for families with young children, that you are guaranteed a certain amount And as you earn more money, the benefit starts withdrawing. And it withdraws very gradually so that as you earn more, you have a chance to stabilize your life, you plan for the future. And all of the results that we've had of a generation's worth of child benefits for those families and a whole range of basic income pilots around the world show that we have the same pattern of benefits. And one of those patterns is that people are actually supported to do better in the paid labor force, uh, to do better in employment. Um, One of the researchers, Wayne Luchuk at McMaster University, retired now, did some work on the Ontario pilot. He actually calls basic income one of the best job strategies you will actually find. And then we have a whole host of other benefits on the health side, especially in mental health. When people know that their basic needs can be met, Mm -hmm. they know they can plan for the future, the reduction in anxiety is enormous, and it happens quickly. You know, when when we talk about this often, you just referenced to the pilot project in Ontario, there was a lot of criticism, there was a lot of concern that the Ford government cancelled that when they came in. What could we have learned from that if it was continued? I think we could have learned things in finer detail about how people's lives worked. But I think there's enough research that we found and enough voices of pilot participants themselves, as I said, combined with so much evidence we have from other countries and from our own programs that have for years been delivering unconditional benefits. We know that they work. You know, there were stories today, we were talking with with one of the Liberal cabinet ministers, and there were several pilot participants relating how significantly having that basic income, even for a little while on the pilot, how it made such an enormous difference to their lives. Do you think that this is something that the partisan nature, the polarized nature, we know that's happening in the United States, and we often wonder if that's really happening here in Canada. But do you think Canada is a right place to give this a go? And, you know, we have a new conservative leader. They're looking for wedges and differences. They want to show their fiscal responsibility. On the other hand, you know, talking about basic income, I've interviewed some conservatives who are big believers, including, and I referenced him earlier this evening, Hugh Siegel, former conservative senator. Is this a partisan thing? 
it's not a partisan thing. It should not be a partisan thing. And I think because Hugh and others on the conservative front, a whole lot of senators with different perspectives, a whole lot of MPs who come from across the political spectrum, all find reasons why a basic income is, I think, the only way to really go in the future. One of the things that's going to come out soon, I believe, is that we will also see Black Lives Matter and um, other racialized groups in Canada very much supporting a basic income as they have in the United States as part of their platform. So I'm the white minority in my family, um, mm-hmm. you know, we're the multiracial group, and and all of us see basic income as a matter of racial justice. So there are so many reasons and so many problems around inequalities and insecurities and poverty in society that this measure can address. And from a fiscal responsibility point of view, you actually see that it could not only pay for itself, but it's an investment in people that gets the results that you need, and it allows you to reduce the costs of a whole lot of problems that societies are facing now. So the matter of you know defunding police or addressing gun violence or looking at spiraling health care costs, those things are all related to factors that we know how to fix, and they're related to income insecurity. Sheila, thank you for joining us, and I'm sure that is um, this is not the last time we talk about it. It could be the beginning of a deep and long discussion. Sheila Regeer, who is chair of Basic Income Canada Network. Thanks, Sheila. Have a nice night. Thank you so much. All right, there we go. And you heard it here. A lot of talk about this. Have you changed? Have people changed? You know, people getting CERB and after the pandemic, is there a moment? But are the liberals, are they going to be accused of, you know, riding again our vulnerability in this pandemic and pushing through big economic picture things that they don't have a mandate for? Or are things so very different now? We don't have a crystal ball here, but we're trying. We're trying. After COVID, there has been a roaring demand for cosmetic surgery. Who's getting it and why and what's going through our minds? Joining us is Stephen Mulholland, who is a physician and an internationally recognized cosmetic plastic surgeon and a lecturer, too. Stephen Mulholland, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Good, Arlene. Good to talk to you again. All right. This surprises a lot of people. What kind of work are people getting after COVID, and what did it do to their desires? Is it a, is it a, a quest to look better, or is it a quest to control their lives? You know, I think there are many variables at work here, but this is, um, and I've been doing this 25 years, this is the busiest summer I've ever had. No kidding. Um, I think this is um, when I talk to colleagues uh, in the U.S. and throughout Canada, they're seeing tremendous um, um, rise in, in, in aesthetic procedures in the summer, not just surgery, but also the non-surgical. And so one of the reasons people are doing things is that not everything has to be surgical. Mm-hmm. There's um, Botox and fillers and lasers and energy-based devices and fat destruction technologies and hair removal and cellulite reduction. There's very little that we can't do non-invasively. And so, you know, Remember, people now have um, 
people have, have still those that are working have um, they have their uh, income. They have nowhere to go, no holidays, no vacations, no travel, <laughs> no no restaurants, no social <laughs> gatherings, and so you know they, they run out of options. <laughs> Uh, and a large proportion are saying, you know what, I'm going to get that nose job I never had. Oh, what a great time. I can wear a mask everywhere I go. So um, a lot of facial procedures, facial covering is hide it, and then there's no water cooler judgment at work because everyone's working at home. And so, um, and some patients just say they're online all the time doing these Zoom meetings. I call it the Zoom boom. They look at these jowls because they have their uh, computer <laughs> angles at the, wrong, at the wrong angle, and they're saying, who is that person? So it is a horrible time. The pandemic's horrible economically and health-wise, but, you know, we live in a vanity culture, and those patients that are predisposed are finding this is just a great time to have a procedure, recover uh, without the glaring uh, observation of your colleagues, and nowhere to go or spend your money anyway. And so it's downtime. A lot of people don't like taking downtime. And I have to tell you, I mean, I, I had a, a a friend who is a political analyst who said to me, boy, you know, I was just on a Zoom call, and I got to tell you, I was completely shocked. <laughs> so it, it is, when people see it, is bad lighting, I'm going to tell everybody, too. So everybody realizes that. How long do you think that this is going to last? We're looking for some permanent changes, and some are, and some aren't. I mean, do you see this as just kind of of a post-convention or COVID boost, or do you think it's going to be around for a while? I think that um, the aesthetic uh, medical space, plastic surgery, has been on a double-digit growth. Um, I opened uh, Spa Medica in 1996-97, double-digit growth every year since then, literally 1,800% in 25 years. So there has never been a quarter, never a downturn economy post-9-11, SARS, uh, um, H1N1, 2008, where people still didn't come to get their procedures. So I think this is a temporary, I'm going to take advantage of working from home, being furloughed, uh, getting paid to recover and, and working online, wearing a mask, doing a facial procedure. So yeah, I think surgery is up about 50 to 100% some practices, but that's wow. a temporary boom. We'll go back to double-digit, good old-fashioned double-digit <laughs> growth where in Toronto, we have never, in 25 years, I've never had a negative a negative, a negative quarter of growth. It's just a steady growth in, in boomers and now millennials adopting um, <clears throat> sort of the concept that whether it's for a job, finding a significant other, feeling good about something, or the vanity culture we live in, mm-hmm. be it right or wrong, you could say, well, why are we so focused on beauty and and because we know Mm -hmm. fundamentally be it right or wrong the book is judged by the cover and if you want to get read you're going to have to have a better cover sometimes or get a new job or find a new spouse so there's Uh, reasons people rationalize it all right. Well, let me ask you, you know, I, mean, I did think of cosmetic surgery after this pandemic. And are, were people concerned about safety or have, have has that all been handled here? Well, that's an excellent question. And so the very first thing in that three months uh, that I was getting ready for was the Ministry of Health um, Infection Control Policy Manual that I know was coming because I went through SARS. SARS is very bad. In 2003, people don't remember, but it was more violent. People got sicker um, than, than with COVID, um, but it wasn't didn't spread as easily mm-hmm. as you knew who was violently ill. But we had plexiglass up. We had all our prevention. We had mitigation. We had masks. We had temperature testing. So I knew that was all coming. 
And I also knew, having been through this three or four times, that first of all, I had to inspire confidence and safety in our staff, that it was safe to return, and then in patients. And so um, we developed this thing called the, the safe filter, injection filter. It's kind of a little a small snorkel you breathe through with a little right angle on it, and it filters 100% of all viral particles, both inspired wow. and expiratory. Yeah, it's really cool. So you can get your Botox and your filler and your, your treatments up close in your face and, and be completely and 100% safe. And it, it was the development of that that I knew would, um, would allow patients to come back confidently and safely, um, you know, where it's kind of weird to wear your mask and go to, go to your local drugstore or um, a restaurant or a department store. But it's completely normal to be all masked up and have plexiglass dividers at your surgery center. Now, people are used to it. Let me ask you, we're almost out of time. Is this men? Is this women? I mean, is there is there any change in who is saying, I want to look different after this virus? Um, the, if you look at the demographic, it's still about 90% women. And of the women, about 30% are, are millennials um, or uh, those that, let's say, were born after 19... 1964, 65, and those that were born in, in the 90s um, make up the nose jobs, the lips, the non-surgical treatments, the lipo and the breast augments, whereas baby boomers still in the workforce um, are suffering the boom, the zoom boom, and getting little mini jawline lifts and suture suspension lifts. So millennials, uh, boomers, and mainly women. All right. Dr. Mulholland, thank you for giving us evidence to what we're reading, a boom in cosmetic surgery. Thank you kindly. Happy Monday. Thanks again, Arlene. Bye-bye. Dr. Stephen Mulholland is a physician, internationally recognized cosmetic plastic surgeon and lecturer. And there we have him commenting on some some news stories telling us that people are saying, I'm I'm getting cosmetic surgery. I was that was a, a surprise. That's the podcast for today. You can hear On Point live on the radio Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10 p.m. I'm Arlene Bonin, filling in for Alex Pearson.